I chose to serve. I had made that decision. Nobody really wants to go to war. Nobody wants to be deployed and take time off from your practice or take time away from your family. But I was here by my choice. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Dr. Raquel Bono is a retired Navy Vice Admiral and Medical Officer. She's a general surgeon with Trauma and Critical Care Fellowship Training. In this episode, Dr. Bono talks about her journey of becoming a Navy trauma surgeon and how that role has evolved pre and post 9-11. She talks about her deployment experiences and some of the key events in her life that shaped her leadership philosophy. This helped her succeed in many important strategic roles in the military health system, including serving as command surgeon and also as a hospital commander. This is part one of our conversation with Vice Admiral Bono. Be sure to check out part two of the interview when it becomes available. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Vice Admiral, Dr. Raquel Bono to Wardocs. Ma'am, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Admiral Bono, you have a distinguished career in the Navy, serving as a trauma surgeon and rising to become the director of the Defense Health Agency. Please tell us your story about joining the military. I knew at some point when I was growing up that I wanted to become a doctor. And, and I kind of was, I was holding on to that. But when the time came after I finished my undergraduate training at the University of Texas, Hookham Warren, and I was deciding to go to medical school, my parents had already told me that it was okay, that they had saved up money, and I didn't need to worry about that. But I really thought that now would be a good time to try and, and do things a little bit on my own and see if I could be a little more self-sufficient. And I heard about the scholarship program that the military was offering, the HPST. So I, I signed up for it and I didn't realize the competitive nature of that process until a couple of decades down the road when I was on the HPST selection board and I realized that there was a process where we were vetted before being able to receive that scholarship. And when I was offered the scholarship and I took it, I thought, okay, this is a great way to go to medical school. And the payback time right after medical school was what was going to be very novel and new to me because I had not been in any kind of military. My grandfather and my father had served in the military, but I myself hadn't experienced it yet. And by the time I came on active duty and I started my internship, and then my residency, and then subsequently was deployed to the first Gulf War, I realized somewhere in the process that when I started being in the military and started doing my payback time, I thought, I'm just doing my payback time. But there was a point there where things shifted, and I realized that this was actually a privilege to be able to serve. And I, I got to serve. I just appreciated and that made a big difference to me because I thought there isn't anybody else doing this in my, in my group that had gone to, I'd gone to medical school, except for maybe one guy, but I don't, I don't think he was taking the same route that I was. And I was blown away by the fact that I was doing things that my classmates weren't. And I was learning so much more about navigating my way through life 
as an officer and as a leader, in addition to learning how to become a surgeon. That's a really long answer to say I started out doing this because of the scholarship, but I ended up realizing that along the way, I was starting to really enjoy it. And as I went through my training and as I was given responsibilities at each job, I thought, okay, well, there's something more to learn here. And so it, it became something not so much that I had to serve, but that I got to serve. And that's what really made the difference for me. So each time I thought, okay, well, maybe it's time for me to leave. The Navy at the time would offer me something else. And I'd go, okay, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I, I think I'll do it. And ended up having a blast each time. So I might have had maybe a little too much fun than I was entitled to, but that's what kept me in. So as Ensign Bono is in medical school, she decides that she would like to become a general surgeon. What was the motivation for you to choose that pathway? It's really interesting because my father's also a surgeon. And when I went into medical school, I thought, okay, I'm going to become a general surgeon because that's all I knew, even though I'd never gone into the OR with my dad. I'd made rounds with him. But when I got to medical school, I thought, wow, there's all kinds of things. There's pediatrics, there's psychiatry, there's internal medicine, there's pathology. I mean, I realized that there was so much diversity and so much breadth in medicine alone. I realized, okay, well, maybe I don't want to be a surgeon. Maybe I want to go into anesthesia. Maybe I want to explore some other things. And so I did all of my clinical rotations with a mind to maybe this is something I'd really enjoy doing. Maybe this is because I had a problem with each of my clinical rotations is that I, I had fun. I enjoyed and I learned so much at each of my clinical rotations. And it came down to trying to decide between OBGYN and general surgery because I realized that I did like the surgical field and I did like working with a wide variety of people. But I came to this one critical decision point where I realized that if I'd gone into OB surgery, OBGYN surgery, that I would probably be waiting for something to happen while somebody was getting ready to deliver. And so if I was going to be up at 2 a.m. anyway, I might as well be operating. So that's how I chose general surgery. And that's subsequently what also persuaded me to pursue trauma surgery. And your residency fulfilled that mission, I'm sure. Yes, it did. It did. And as a vascular surgeon, we were probably, as a matter of fact, most of my colleagues that I was up with in the middle of the night or early morning were either vascular surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, or neurosurgeons when I would be on call. So if you're going to be up at that hour, you're usually going to be operating. So that's what made the difference for me. That's why I chose urology, because when I was in the ER, I would see all those other people, but I wouldn't see urologists. So, you know, eventually I did more trauma surgery than I did general surgery. And of course, if we had to bring in a urologist, that was that was usually something where we were talking about a complex injury of some kind. So you spent over a decade working at the Naval Medical Center in Portsmouth, and you also worked over at EVMS, Eastern Virginia Medical School, where you did your fellowship. And that was during the time frame of Desert Shield, Desert Storm. But before... OIF, OEF. Given the relatively limited number of casualties in the first Gulf War, what were Navy surgeons and specifically trauma surgeons, what were you preparing for? It's a great question. I, I think that we kind of went in and if you could recall the platform we were on, this was an expeditionary hospital. We called it a fleet hospital. And people automatically assume when they hear fleet that they must mean that we were on some kind of 
water or sea or sea-based platform. And fleet only refers to the fact that we were a Navy. But the fleet hospitals were land-based and you had your equivalent in, in the Army and, and the Air Force had also a land component presence. But we kind of went in there with the first, this was kind of the first large-scale deployment of a land-based hospital that had multiple specialties represented, where we had not only a resuscitative capability and casualty receiving, but we had surgical capability. We had general surgeons. And I was there as a trauma surgeon. We had urologists. We had orthopods. We had all the specialties there, and we had an ICU. So we had really more tertiary level type of care that had been deployed in this way for the first time. So we didn't know what to expect and we didn't know exactly, at least in the fleet hospital, I didn't. Nobody told me. I wasn't part of the notification process there for, for what we were actually doing. But I knew that part of what we needed to do if we saw any kind of large scale trauma was to make sure that we had a system in place where we could receive casualties, process them through, and then make sure that we had the right kind of training. So eventually we realized that there weren't going to be a lot of casualties, thankfully. But the lessons that we learned there was the importance of having a system, the importance of having a process, and how well you trained for that, and how you you made sure that the rest of your hospital or the rest of your platform knew how to fit into whatever process that was needed to resuscitate, stabilize, and then either transfer out, medevac out, or continue care in the field until such time when you could safely medevac folks. So while we didn't have a lot of casualties, there was a lot of training and a lot of education that we did, which was extremely important because in OEF, OINA, we started being more sophisticated in, in how we thought about approaching trauma care, trauma casualty care. And so by the time that that rolled around and we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, we had set up a multidisciplinary casualty receiving areas at both Walter Reed and at Bethesda. By this time, I was in at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And I realized how important it was that we would think of things as a system of care not only at the MTFs as an S3, but we also thought of a system of care from resuscitation at an echelon one and then all the way back to definitive care. So it was kind of that thinking of seeing us as a, a system of systems and making sure that we were all connected, that many of us who had been in Desert Shield Desert Storm really took forward or brought forward into OEF, OIF, because we realized how important it was to be able to make sure that all of our systems were connected. The other thing that we learned or that I appreciated was that in that first Gulf War, none of us were there by ourselves. I mean, we had, as a matter of fact, some of my medical students and some of the residents who I'd had from other services, we ended up seeing each other in country. And, and it really brought home to me that there was, for a, a contingency, it was unlikely that we were ever going to be a single service in the response, that we also had to learn how to work together. So while the actual experience of Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, 
didn't give us a lot of actually hands-on trauma, which was good. We didn't want to lose anybody. We did have some trauma. It fortunately wasn't the, the people in uniform that I ended up taking care of. But the big lessons were how do we make ourselves a multidisciplinary system? How do we make sure that we connect our systems of care so that we're consistent in our handoffs and we're consistent with the level of care that we give each of our casualties and our wounded warriors? So let's let's think, talk about that trauma system a little bit more, especially for Desert Storm, Desert Shields, because you had the opportunity to deploy with Fleet Hospital 5 as the head of casualty receiving for the mission. So we think now about the spoken hub concept where you get a patient back to the role three and then critical care air transport takes them back to the level four launch duel or even, even farther back to the United States. What was the trauma system in Desert Storm, Desert Shield in comparison to what we have now? It was not nearly as sophisticated. I mean, granted, the casualties that we would end up medevacking were pretty mild. There was, there was probably one really severe one, which, you know, and there isn't, even today, these types of injuries, burn injuries and inhalation injuries have a very high morbidity and mortality. And so I did have a couple of uh, burn patients that I ended up taking care of in first Gulf War. And the imperative to try and, and get them out of country as quickly as possible was kind of daunting. I mean, people understood how important it was to make this happen. And we were very fortunate that we didn't have a lot of air operations or something that would not allow us to medevac somebody out of the theater. But fast forward to what we, what we were actually able to practice was we all knew about that golden hour. We all knew how critical it was to be able to move people out of theater as quickly as possible. And in the past, we'd always kind of relied on opportunity of lift when it would become available. This time, we were able to actually be more dedicated about that, and that critical care air transport was such a big part of being able to do that and to be able to medevac people, evacuate people out of the theater very quickly and provide continued high-level resuscitative care. And that made all the difference. And, and we saw that over and over again in our, our civilian trauma, how critical it is to move people to higher levels of care as quickly as possible. So those burn patients that you had, can you tell us about the management and how they were handled? Because that's one of the things we think about getting them out, like you said, as quickly as possible. But was that the case? I think that we were all attuned to that we needed to get them out. And we did medevac them back to launch stool where they were able to continue to have care. Well, I think the other piece, though, that we did better in OEF and OIF is I think we had better exchange of information so that we could actually tell the care longitudinally what had happened to our patients when we when we got them out of theater. That wasn't something that I had when I was in the first Gulf War. When we packaged people and, and medevaced them out of theater, it was very hard to know what had happened once they left our care. So I think a communication and sharing that and being able to take a more longitudinal approach with our patients was something that that we did better with OEF and OIF than we did in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So you mentioned that several or most of the casualties were local nationals, and those patients really aren't eligible for evacuation out of the country. Did you feel that the plan for taking care of the local nationals and somehow 
getting them back into the local healthcare system. Did that work in the the original Gulf War? And how did that mature? Because we had a lot of that in OIF and OEF. Unfortunately, the local nationals that I ended up taking care of had pretty severe injuries. And it was remarkable because the level of care we were able to provide at our fleet hospital was something that they hadn't seen in that part of the country, in that particular area where Fleet Hospital was located. Um, being able to work with the local authorities was something like that was really outside of where I was at, my, at that time in my career, in terms of my rank and, and my position. I do know that the, our Fleet Hospital commanding officer, though, spent a lot of time making sure that they had those right kind of connections so that we could transfer people to the civilian hospitals. And civilian hospitals, though, when we were able to gain access to them, were actually very capable and, and quite sophisticated. So there was a higher degree of confidence that the care that they were going to be getting or receiving would would result in, in a, a good outcome. So being that you're a flag officer in the Navy, and we hear a lot from other guests who are in other services, particularly land-based services, and we think about combat roles of care, one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. I think many people have described what that means in land-based warfare. Can you briefly mm-hmm. give us a little bit of insight into how you planned for potential large ocean-based naval engagements where there would be high levels of casualty, particularly because you've been specially trained in the trauma systems of care. Yeah, that's a very sobering conversation. It really is, because if we looked at the different domains in which conflict could happen, when it came to sea-based domains or undersea domains, the casualty figures and estimates were always daunting. And if it wasn't the injury itself, it was exposure or the challenges of just being able to recover and resuscitate its insight. And then the other piece of that, too, that that was a, a complicating factor was we were also looking at unmanned assault, whether airborne or undersea. And how did we deal with that? How did we prepare for that? So I think that, not surprisingly, we would look at initial casualty estimates and realize that that there was a more than even chance that we were going to have very high casualty numbers just because the domain of being at sea or undersea would make it challenging to do very rapid rescue and resuscitation and recognizing that sometimes our, our rescue vessels themselves would, would also be at risk for as a target. So that was always something very sobering, but the same principles applied as scoop and run, do whatever you could and evacuate as quickly out of that theater and using all kinds of transport available. And if we had air, which might be hard, being the float of the ocean, maybe another ship and, and how well could we get them out of there? So I think you'll start to see different designs on, on ships and in terms of how they're outfitted for rescue or resuscitation and transport. But that is that is a really challenging thing. And so we try to make each of the ships as capable as possible to do what they can for immediate resuscitation and to keep ongoing resuscitation until they can get to definitive care. But it's limited by the 
of the space he had there. And, and so it's, it was always one of the challenging things about looking at the casting numbers through that lens. So in the time period immediately before 9-11, you moved to the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. And tell us your 9-11 experience and how this changed your perspective of military medicine. Now, that's one of those dates that if you ask anybody that they'll remember where they were. And of course, I do know. I remember exactly where I was. And, and that was at that time, it was the Navy Medicine Bumed headquarters. And I was on my way to the Pentagon because one of the things that I was supposed to do was I, w- I was actually checking in to my, uh, my new assignment at, the, at Bumed. Uh, we had personnel support at the Pentagon where they would do our IDs and, and things like that. And I needed to go there to do some of my admin work. And I remember that we were just getting ready to leave for the Pentagon when we were watching what was happening in New York. And it's one of those surreal things where you think, you know, is this, who's, whose show is this? I mean, it, it, it was, was kind of like, was this a, was this a, a, a movie that somebody was making? And it took me a while to realize that this was in real time. So we were all in shock, but the plane hadn't hit the Pentagon yet. And so we were on our way. We were getting ready to leave the compound and head towards the, the Pentagon, which was across the river. And all of a sudden, we're getting ready to get into the vehicle, and there should we, we can't go. The Pentagon's been hit. And it was one of those things where, okay, well, let's go over there and see if can we help. I was a little naive because I'd never worked on the Pentagon Reservation up to that point. And so I was really naive about the the size of that place and how difficult it might be to actually get on the compound, the reservation itself. And then, of course, we, we, ha- we all had people on the Pentagon and we had medical nurses there that, and we, and we had everybody else that provided our initial support, initial resuscitation. There was a realization, there was an epiphany I had that I, it actually occurred in the first Gulf War, and 9-11 just reinforced it for me. And the, re- the epiphany I had in the first Gulf War is that I was one of six surgeons and that was deployed to Freed Hospital 5. And not exactly proud of the fact that we weren't the, I mean, we were kind of cantankerous about being out there because, as, as you pointed out, there weren't a lot of casualties. And while I was there in the first Gulf War, one of the things that I realized was that I chose to serve. I had made that decision. Nobody really wants to go to war. Nobody wants to be deployed and take time off from your practice or take time away from your family. But what I came to the realization of, I was here by my choice and I should do what I was trained to do and not be the cog in the system that kind of gums things up. And it was, that was a real profound reckoning for me that I needed to be a part of the solution and not at a stumbling block. So 9-11 happens and I'm realizing that what I had learned in that first Gulf War was even more true now, that I could continue to serve and be a part of the solution or at the very least, I should not impede other people. But, but it became very important for me personally that I find ways to serve and, and to try to make the system of care, the military health system, 
work better. And at this point, I'm starting to realize that while, of course, I'm Navy blue and gold and, and that's my parent service. And while I want Navy medicine to always be at the top of our game, I started appreciating that there had to be a better system of care that we all collectively could provide. And I think 9-11 kind of helped bring home that now with things on our soil, things, the world had suddenly gotten much smaller. And that was something that didn't appreciate it at the time, but became even more profound when we saw COVID and the, the pandemic roll out, which was something that we had kind of wargamed in one of my, my subsequent jobs. Each of these things started building on each other. And I wish I could say that back in the first Gulf War, that the trajectory was something that I could have seen, but it was only kind of in looking back that I realized how, how important each of these episodes and experiences were for me. So you had a very unique experience in 2004, 2005, in that you were the executive assistant to former Navy Surgeon General Vice Admiral Donald Arthur. So you got a front row seat to that strategic level of what a three-star running the medical system for the Navy does. And fast forward, you got to that three-star rank as well. What kind of lessons did you learn working for the Surgeon General? You know, that was another one of those jobs that I had that where I experienced a number of epiphanies. I mean, it was kind of like every time I turned, I was like, oh, wow, I had no idea. So the big lesson that I, first off, I've got to tell you that Admiral Arthur, working with him was like, I mean, a lesson every, he had such great analytic acumen and he was such a visionary and had this wonderful command of what it meant to really run an enterprise in the right way. And, and he really introduced to me what that enterprise approach needed to look like. And so it wasn't about being a medical officer or, a, or somebody in the medical corps. It wasn't about just my corps. It, and it wasn't just about being Navy medicine. Admiral Arthur really helped expand my aperture to look at things across not only the Navy medicine enterprise, but the military health system enterprise. That was lesson number one, is that he really encouraged me to think much more broadly. One of his really good colleagues was General Kyrie, who was the Army Surgeon General. And, and that's where I, I started realizing that at that level, the services were always talking to each other. So that was lesson number one, is keep a very broad aperture. The other thing that he taught me, and this was so invaluable, he gave me a, a better appreciation for how the military fit in the overarching geopolitical DOD government umbrella. And I wasn't quite sure how that relationship worked at all. I knew that as, as a Department of Defense entity, the Navy somehow answered to the president, that I didn't know all those layers in between. I really didn't understand the interface between the Secretary of Defense and, and the services, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the COCOMs. I, I didn't have that appreciation until I had that job. And then I realized that in addition to seeing things from a much broader perspective, that I needed to also develop an appreciation for what was going on above us at the elected and appointed official level. 
because they had really a lot of, of impact on what we did, how our resources were spent, and, and how certain decisions were made. So that's when I also started having an appreciation that there are several le- different levers in change. There's, there's the policy and the legislative and the regulatory level. And then there's the, the change that needs to occur at the military medical headquarters and sometimes in conjunction, oftentimes in conjunction with the service headquarters. And then how does that trickle down? each of the MTS, down to the individual providers, down to the medic, down to the corpsman. And, and that was something that seeing the breadth of, of what Admiral Arthur was, was dealing with, you know, made me appreciate that although I was a surgeon, I didn't like being out of the OR. And I thought that being in the OR was really the only place to be because that's where I could really make change happen. Well, I started realizing that there were people outside of the OR and outside of the NTFs that were also interested in making the right kind of changes happen. And I, I think the big lesson that I took away from that experience was if I wanted to help shape some of those decisions, then I needed to find a way to be in those conversations because those decisions about legislation or regulations that were coming from Congress, they were informed by a number of people, but they needed to make sure, I felt at the time, they needed to be informed also by the people who are in the MTFs that are trying to, to make things happen and try to do things in the right way. I thought if, if I get a chance and I, if I ever had that opportunity to function at that level, then I always wanted to be able to reach to all people, but especially the people that had that direct interface with their patients. I could see how challenging it was, but I also saw how, how pivotal and, and how imperative it was to have that, that to access. You served in hospital command as well as command surgeon, U.S. Pacific Command, which our listeners may hear us describe as PACOM. How does a military physician prepare for those roles? And what were some of the major challenges and lessons you learned from those assignments? In the OR, it's kind of easy, you know, which instruments you like, you know, you train for a certain type of procedure. And of course, you always have your favorites and uh, you work with a team in the OR and everyone knows what their roles are. When you start getting into leadership positions, like running a hospital, then you realize that you can't just be the surgeon. You have to be somebody who's willing and able to represent all constituents of a hospital, the nurses, the, the foreman, the the doctors, the patients, more than anything. You have to be able to lead up to your headquarters and to the local officials who, who have an interest in your, in your hospital. So I think that that's one of the places where I learned, if anyone's had a chance to read The 360 Degree Leader by John Maxwell, it's a great book. What it helps describe is the importance of leading down but also leading across to your colleagues and to your peers. So I, I would have to make sure that I could reach across and talk to other MTF commanders. And then leading up, leading up to your headquarters or, or to the ISIC, or if you're on a post or a base where you had another echelon of, of leadership that you would be responsible to. So it was a good opportunity for me to learn how to lead down, across, and, and up. And, and I think that's an imperative for, for folks. It's so, it's, it's a piece of leadership that takes work. And it's not 
something as as easily done as as I make it sound and as as John Maxwell describes in his book. But making that shift then to paycom, that is a totally different element because most of what I did there had really nothing to do with running a hospital or delivering healthcare, but it had everything to do with understanding the role that a COCOM has with international partners and how, as a physician, we could use health and medical outreach as a way of engaging with other countries and helping set the stage for additional dialogue with other elements of the COCOM, like logistics or, or training or anything that would open the door and allow other elements of the COCOM to interface with our international partners. And of course, being in, in what I think it's now Indo-8, was Indo-PACOM that they call it, the important thing was, was using those global health engagements as enablers to the, the geopolitical and foreign doctrine as representatives of our country. So that was a totally different perspective in getting ready for that. I remember preparing by understanding a little bit more about some of the, the history of the countries that were represented in PACOM. I also spent a great deal of time understanding where the Secretary of State and their Commander-in-Chief were going. And as you recall at that time, President Obama was our Commander-in-Chief, and he was really looking at the pivot to Asia and what did that look like and how did we execute or operationalize that outreach to that area. So it wasn't anything, what I did there in Taekwondo wasn't in any of my medical textbooks or in medical school or in my surgery or residency, but it was something that built, was definitely built on my experience with Admiral Arthur and seeing his perspective and seeing the entire military health system as an enterprise. What would you say were the greatest changes you noticed in the naval trauma system of care throughout your career? I think the, the biggest changes that, that we made, and it wasn't so like, oh man, what had to be eight? It wasn't something like that. It was recognizing that trauma care was a multidisciplinary sport. That as much as us trauma surgeons would like to think they were really the end all and be all, that's all you needed. We actually needed all the other players too. And that was like the, it was another one of those things. And I thought we did a pretty good job of that with Walter Reed and Bethesda. And I know, I know they did a really good job of that here in San Antonio, but uh, yeah, casualty care had to be a multidisciplinary sport. It couldn't be a, a one, one specialty area. And I think that's the piece too that, that I like to emphasize about the military medical system is that working across the services with my Army and Air Force colleagues, we were like unbeatable. But if I tried to do it all, we just... Navy assets. It was, we didn't have enough to, to make it as comprehensive as, as we'd like to. And so, but across the services, there wasn't a country that, or a health system that could hold a candle to us. So that's why I was very much a, an advocate for doing this all together. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Raquel Bono on Wardock's podcast. Ma'am, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you. And thank you guys for doing this. This is great. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. 
Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.